If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We have a juicy one for you tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to pray us, pray for our time in the Word. Father, I just thank you so much that you are the God, the Father who loves us enough to discipline us. And when we're doing things that we shouldn't be doing, that, that Lord, you, the Bible tells us that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And tonight as we learn a little bit about what chastening looks like in the church, God, I pray that you would give us insight and understanding. And, and Lord, I pray that um, this would be of great encouragement and comfort to our hearts, that we would catch your heart in the midst of all of this. And so we give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Got a question for you. Can you remember the last time that you were shocked by something? Maybe it was some good news and you were just like, no way, that's amazing, I can't believe it. And you were just absolutely shocked. Maybe it was a surprise party that somebody threw for you. And you walked in the door and everybody yelled and they did, they did such a good job in that surprise that you had no idea whatsoever that it was coming. Or maybe it was the shock, the tragic shock of hearing that somebody you knew died in an accident or died in some tragic way. And it was somebody young, where it was like they had so much life ahead of them. I've had that happen too many times, and it is always just a grieving kind of, of shock. Maybe it was the shock of a travesty, you heard something that, that took place that was just so grievous and you're like, man, I, I, I'm just shocked. I can't believe that. Well, let me ask you this question. When's the last time that you were shocked by sin? You see, that was the problem with the church in Corinth. Is rather than being shocked and grieved by a specific sin that was taking place in their midst, they were tolerating You know, we saw in chapter 1 where the Corinthian believers were divided when they should have been united. And here in chapter 5, we see them united when they really should have been divided. Let's look look into what Paul's talking about here and what caused him, when he heard this, to literally respond with a sense of of shock. Verse 1, he says, it's actually reported that There is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. And now he's going to define what it is. He says this, that a man has his father's wife. In the original language of this passage, it conveys the idea that Paul was both shocked and horrified when this news was reported to him. That he was appalled to hear that the church was tolerating this man who was involved in sexual immorality, that he had his father's wife. And in the context of sexual immorality, that verb has did not refer to a one-time deal, as bad as that could, would have been. But no, it referred to something that was ongoing, 
something that was a continual. And Paul described the woman not as the man's mother, but as his father's wife. And that terminology would lend us to believe that she was actually his stepmother rather than his biological mother. And we don't know if his, dad, if his father was still alive. That really doesn't matter. But if he, if he was alive, I mean, this would be even more severe. I mean, this is soap opera stuff, right? This is the kind of stuff that you see, I don't see, but maybe some of you see on those soap operas that are on TV. I hope that you are not seeing those things. But notice he adds this. Such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. In other words, he's saying, look, unbelievers don't even do this. I mean, this is how bad this is. And, and listen, when, when unbelievers, when non-Christians are looking at something that Christians are doing, you go, that's nasty. I mean, when the unbelievers think it's nasty, I mean, that is nasty, right? And I want to remind you, just to put this again in, in the framework, the context. I want to remind you that Corinth was a very immoral place. Corinth had a history and a reputation for being a very sexually active and perverted town. It was a place where there was gender confusion and massive sexual perversion. The ancient city existed with a temple that included a thousand prostitutes that went out every single night seeking to recruit worshipers through sexual practices. In fact, Corinth was so bad that to be referred to in that time frame as a sexual pervert, they would just call you a Corinthian. You know, today we say, somebody say, that dude's a perv. You know, in their day and age, that, that dude's a Corinthian. And if, and if a gal was involved in, you know, prostitution, they, the, the reference that they had for her was, she's a Corinthian girl. That's how bad Corinth was. Corinth was just notorious for being this liberal town. It was a port city, so there was always a lot of people coming and going and lots of sexual activity, lots of promiscuity that was taking place. But as bad as Corinth was, this sin that Paul is referring to here that was going on in the church of Corinth was even beyond their lack of morals. In fact, get this, under Roman law, this person was liable for banishment from the Roman colony. The Romans even looked at this as like, you know, they tolerated about anything, but hey, not sleeping with your stepmother. One pastor called this Christians gone wild. That was his, jokingly, his response or description of the situation here in Corinth. And I want you to know, Paul isn't just horrified by the sin, but he's grieved by the Corinthians' response to this sin. In fact, look at verse 2. He says, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. Here's what Paul's saying. Rather than being grieved, the Corinthian believers were proud of their open-mindedness. They were proud of their tolerance. They were proud of their quote-unquote political correctness in allowing the offending brother to just remain 
in their fellowship and remain in, in their services and remain in their gatherings. And instead of proudly accepting the man, Paul says the church should have been filled with grief because of his sin. And Paul wanted his readers to experience great sorrow over this fellow believer's sin. Because that immorality was destructive, you see, both to the sinner and also to the church. So the question that this passage presents for us is this. How should should the church deal with a person, a Christian, a professed Christian who is involved in habitual, unrepentant sin and rebellion? How should the church deal with such a person? And here's our outline for this evening. Blatant sin must be dealt with, number one, for the offender's sake, number two, for the sake of the church's health, and number three, for the sake of understanding the church's role in the world. Let's look at number one. Blatant sin must be dealt with, number one, for the offender's sake. Look at verse three. Paul says, for, for I indeed am absent in body. I might not be with you guys, but I am present in spirit. And being present in spirit, I have already judged as though I were present. I've already judged him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Here's Paul's instruction to the church. Paul says that they were to deliver this guy over to Satan, not for damnation, but for restoration, in order that his flesh might be destroyed, but his spirit would be saved. And here's what we need to understand in this. At the heart of all Church discipline is it's always for the protection and for restoration, for protection of the body and for restoration of the individual. Some people just have to be dealt with out of a sense of protection for the body because Paul warned that there would be wolves that would come into the body. And then what do wolves do? Wolves prey on sheep. That's why I can always tell if somebody's a wolf is that wolves love to eat sheep. And so for the protection of the body, when you see a wolf, they need to be cast out. It's very simple. But also in the heart of discipline within the church, it's, it also needs to be for restoration. You see, when we're disciplining somebody, especially in a severe manner like this, it's not to punish them to just punish them. It's not to punish them because we're angry with them. It's not to punish them because we just can't stand them. No, the heart in it is always the hope of restoration of that sinning believer coming back into fellowship with Jesus and the church. And this is the focus of Paul's instruction here. Yes, it is drastic, but it's actually for the sake of the individual. When Paul says, deliver such a one to Satan, this is what he's saying. Hey, if that guy wants to live like he's a part of the world, let him. 
Let him. It's like what the father did with the prodigal son. Remember when the prodigal son came and said, Dad, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of living here. I'm sick of living under your rules and your regulations. I want my freedom. Give me my inheritance, which was an essence of saying to his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance And I want to just go live my life the way I want. And what did that father do? He let him. He gave it to him and he let him in hopes that his son was going to find that what he thought, you know, the grass would be greener on the other side, that it actually wasn't. Remember what happened to that young man? After spending all of his money on riotous living, it says he finally came to his senses in a pig pen of all places. He lost everything. And he came to his senses, and in coming to his senses, he realized, man, I have sinned against God, and I've sinned against my father, and I'm going to go back, and I'm going to tell my dad, hey, I'm not worthy to be one of your servants. Can I please just, I'm not worthy to be your son. Can I please come back and be one of your servants? Well, that's the idea here. Paul's saying, don't tolerate the sin. Kick this guy out of the church, Let him know, hey, you can't do that here. You can't do that type of thing here. Turn him over to Satan. Turn him over to the world for the destruction of his flesh. You see, that's what sin does. Sin destroys the flesh. It destroys the body. Sin takes its toll on people. It ages them. Have you ever seen somebody, like two people, one that loves the Lord and one that, you know, has just been living in sin? And maybe, let's say, you know, both of them are 30 years old and, and the person that is loving Jesus, they look like they're 25. And the person that's just been living for 30 years, you know, for the world, they look like they're 50. That's what sin does. It ages you takes its toll on you. It depletes you. It leaves you feeling spent and worked and ripped off because that's what the devil does is he's a thief and a robber who seeks to come and to kill and to rob and destroy. He is a taker who is always seeking to take from us. So Paul's saying, hey, let the world take its toll on him. Let the world have its toll on him in hopes that he will eventually come to his senses and repent and turn back to the Lord. You see, what we're hoping is that person that we have to discipline in that way, as the the sin and the world starts to take its toll on him, we're hoping, the hope is that they would eventually start to miss the church and to miss the community in the church and to miss the love and the support and like that prodigal son, come to their senses and say, you know what, I need to return. I need to repent. I need to get back into good graces with the Lord and my friends and my fellowship. Now I do want to say though this, Please hear me. Don't tune out. If you're in the kitchen or somewhere right now, tune in. Don't miss this. This is always a last resort. This is to happen after we have confronted that person, after we've prayed for them, after we've given them the opportunity to change. And it's only if they are just blatantly continuing to live in rebellion, to kind of thumb their nose at us and say, hey, I'm okay with Jesus. I can do whatever I want. That then we have to deal with this person in this severe way in hopes that they will Humbly, they'll be humbled and humbly come back and walk with the Lord. Now we know, here's what's interesting, from Paul's 
letter in 2 Corinthians that this action that the church ended up taking, it worked. This guy ended up repenting. This guy ended up coming back. This guy got out, broke off that relationship. And what's really, really interesting in 2 Corinthians, we find that the church actually was having a hard time receiving him back. And that's a whole nother study for a whole nother time. But it's just interesting how that worked. It's also worth noting that in this whole discussion, the woman isn't addressed in this at all. She's not mentioned. He doesn't give any instruction about how to deal with her. And that gives us an indication that she was an unbeliever. That's why Paul is not addressing her. She's not a part of the fellowship. She's, she's not somebody that was professing to, to be a Christian. Now, there are those in reading this and hearing me, there, there are those who would have this tendency to say, but Pastor Rob, that doesn't seem very loving. I thought we were supposed to be loving and, and accepting. I thought, I thought there was freedom in Jesus. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Listen, God does want us to be happy, but God always connects happiness with holiness. And when we're talking about freedom, this isn't freedom at all, what this guy was wrapped up in. No, this is slavery to lust, that actually leads to more sin, which, which ultimately leads to death. You see, this idea that, you know, oh, I'm supposed to be free, it's a lie. Here's the problem. When we, in the name of love, are being tolerant with people who are involved in sin, we are only enabling them to stay in that sinful situation that is destructive to the relationship with Jesus, and it's destructive to them physically and emotionally and spiritually. And so by enabling them through our tolerance, we're not helping them, but literally we are hurting them. You see, there's no freedom, friends, apart from the freedom that comes from Jesus. So when someone says, well, if you love me, you would accept me, you need to answer. When somebody who is, I'm gonna, let me rephrase that. When someone who is a believer, who is living in habitual sin says, if you really love me, you would just accept me, you need to answer. It's because I love you that I'm compelling you to change. It's because I love you that I'm compelling you to walk in holiness and walk in right relationship with God who loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to leave heaven and come to this earth to pay the price for your sins, to set you free from your sins so that you no longer have to be bound to this type of sin. So in other words, listen friends, confronting somebody who is, professes to be a Christian who is living in sin confronts Running them is the most loving thing that you can do. Think of it this way. If a tumor was growing in my body, a cancerous, malignant, or a cancerous, dangerous tumor, no competent doctor would say, you know, Rob, I'm not going to operate on you because that would just be too harsh for your body. No, if he's a competent doctor who really, really cares for me, he's going to say, Rob, we need to operate and we need to do it now. We need to get that thing out of you before it kills you. Well, that's exactly what we're saying to this professing Christian 
who is living in sin. If I really care about someone, I'm going to say to them, you know what, I can't fellowship with you. And it's not because I don't like you or I don't love you. It's because I do love you. It's because I care about you so much. And I can't just pretend. I just can't pretend and and go on as if there's nothing amiss that is going on in your life. Because I know that that the actions, the path that you are on, it's destructive and it's gonna kill you. And I just can't sit back and watch that. And so out of love, I've gotta warn you. And out of love, I'm gonna separate from you in hopes that you come to your senses and you begin to miss the wonderful, beautiful fellowship that we have. So, number one. When somebody that professes to be a Christian is involved in blatant, habitual rebellion and sin, we are to separate them. We are to cast them out for the sake of the offender, that he would come to his senses and that his soul would be saved. Number two, we need to do that for the sake of the church, the health of the church. Notice how Paul kind of takes this discussion in a little bit different direction in verse 6. He says, your glory, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, they, they understood that leaven, leaven is the yeast and the dough that would cause the bread to rise. And they knew this. They understood that a little bit of leaven, you don't need a lot, just a little bit of leaven affects the whole loaf. Well, leaven in scripture is always a picture of sin. And we have the tendency to think that a little bit of sin and a little bit of compromise isn't really a big deal. But in reality, what what the Bible teaches us is that a little bit of leaven affects the whole loaf and a little bit of sin affects the whole body. Or in this case, Paul's saying it's going to affect the whole church. So here's the question. How does a person's sin left unchecked, not confronted, but being tolerated, how does that, how does that affect the whole church? Well, there's an external way that it affects the whole church and an internal way that it affects the whole church. Let me, let me talk for, for a minute about the external way. The, the external way is that there are those who are watching this, who know that this is going on, and it gives them a license to sin. Let me give you an example. Let's say there's a guy in the church who's committing adultery. He's involved with a, another woman. Maybe it's somebody in the church. Maybe it's somebody outside the church. But everybody in the church knows it. They know that it's going on. Nothing's being done. He's living in an adulterous relationship and he comes to church and he's worshiping and, and he's doing you know, all this kind of thing and, and you'd be surprised how often that happens. Because here's, what, here's the, the, the thing that's tough about this whole discipline thing in our day and age is we can discipline somebody here, somebody in this type of situation and you know what they do is they just go to the church down the street and no one knows them in that church and no one knows you know, what's going on. And so somebody you know, here and they're thinking, you know, hey, God's okay with my sin. My wife wasn't meeting my needs. Well, he starts talking to somebody else in the body and that guy goes, you know, my wife isn't meeting my needs either. Maybe I need to do the same thing. So it has an external effect. It gives others a license to sin. 
Or maybe there's somebody, you know, involved in drugs or they're smoking pot or they're, you know, doing something like that. And, and somebody else goes, well, hey, he, I know they're doing that. And the leadership, they, they know about that and no one's doing anything. So, you know, it must be fine. I'm going to do that as well. And so undealt with sin, when it's in the body and it's undealt with, it can, have, it can cause others to feel like they have a license to sin as well. It can affect the rest of the body in that way. But the example that Paul uses here of yeast in, is how sin really internally affects us. That the idea is that it's not really at first seen. You don't see, you know, the yeast, once it gets put into the dough, it just kind of gets mixed into it. But you see the results of it. You see the effects of it as the bread rises, as that flat dough begins to rise. And in the life of the Christian, the same thing is true. Internally, here's what happens. It weakens him. And here's what happens to the church. It weakens the church. It weakens the church of its power. It weakens the church of its anointing. So there's an internal thing that is happening and we may not even be realizing it, but we begin to see the effects that the anointing and the power and and sort of the blessing of God is lifted. You see, if sin is tolerated and sin, sin does not remain static, it's like a cancer, it grows. And it begins to deplete and weaken and slowly kill that church body. So for each of us, we must acknowledge that we have the potential. This is a heavy thing to think about. Each of us needs to realize, we need to acknowledge, hey, I have the potential to destroy this church. You have the potential to destroy this church, to greatly weaken this church by you living in unrepentant, habitual sin. Overlooking flagrant sin is not being gracious, guys. It's dangerous is what Paul is wanting us to see. It's like leaving a nail in your tire. You ever done that before? Pretty soon you come out and your tire's flat. Or it would be like just allowing a rattlesnake to live in your backyard. Pretty soon there's going to be a day when all of a sudden it bites and kills one of your kids. So here's what Paul says we need to do, verse 7. Therefore, purge. That means cut out. Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. Now notice that. Paul is drawing their attention to their position in Christ once again. He's been doing this all through the letter. It started with him calling them saints in chapter 1, talking about the blessing. Saints mean that they've been set apart. And over and over again, he keeps bringing them back to this idea of their position in Christ because what he's exhorting them in in almost every single one of these situations is this. Be who you are in Jesus instead of who you used to be in your flesh. Jesus, hey, he's made you righteous. He's made you holy. He's already taken out the leaven, the sin that is inside of you. So live that way and then he gives us the example of the Passover he says for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us 
Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He draws their attention back to the story of the children of Israel when they were leaving Egypt. As they were leaving Egypt, remember, they they celebrated the Passover. It was the very first Passover when the angel of death was going to pass over Egypt, killing the firstborn of all the homes in Egypt, except for the ones who had the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost of their house. And prior to that evening where the angel of death would pass over, the Lord instructed the children of Israel to remove all the leaven out of their houses and to eat unleavened bread for seven days. It was a sign of their being consecrated to the Lord. For seven whole days, they were to eat unleavened bread. And Paul says that just as the Israelites were concerned to remove all the leaven from their midst, we should be equally concerned to remove the leaven of this brother who is habitually and flagrantly sinning. We need to remove him from our midst. We need to purge out the leaven because Christ is our Passover. And Paul's connection between the purity of the Passover and the Christian life, it's, it's not a stretch here. You see, Jesus is the our Passover lamb whose blood was shed there at Calvary and the judgment of God. As, as Jesus was dying in our place, we could look at it this way. The judgment of God that was meant for us was passing over us as it was being applied to his son. So we're to live in the purity of what that Passover speaks of. I love this quote from Pastor David Gusick. He says, our Christian lives are to be marked by the same things which characterize Passover, salvation, liberation, joy, plenty, and purity from sin. So Paul here is concerned about their well-being, their holiness, their, their being a sanctified church. And because of that, he says, discipline is necessary, number one, for the sake of the individual. Number two, it's important for the sake of the church's health. And finally, number three, discipline is important in understanding the role of the church in the world. Look at verse nine. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or the idolaters since then you would need to to go out of the world. Paul is clarifying something here. That this is an aspect of his instruction that it seems had been a little bit misunderstood in a previous letter he had written to them, a letter that we don't have record of, in which he had written to the believers that they were not to associate with sexually immoral people. And it seems that some in the church took that to mean unbelievers, almost like, hey, we need to isolate ourselves. And Paul says, hey, it's obvious It should have been obvious that's not what I was talking about because if it was, then you would have needed to just 
remove yourself completely from the world. And we know that's not what we're supposed to do because Jesus called us to be salt and light in this world. And salt needs to be seen, or excuse me, light needs to be seen, and salt needs to permeate. It needs to get put on. It needs to rub shoulders with, if you would, the thing that it's supposed to affect. And we can't do that from a distance, and we can't do that in isolation. No, Jesus is calling us to minister his love and his grace with with the world that so desperately needs to know him. So here's what this means, folks. Here's what what this means, church. Listen close. We need to be patient and loving with unbelievers who are caught up in sin. You know why? They don't know better. They don't know better. They're deceived. Their eyes have been blinded by the enemy. They're they're just doing what, what they think is the right thing to do. We need to really, I think, have the heart of Jesus toward those who are on the outside, the heart that Jesus had on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. You know, Jesus, as we look at him as our example, he loves sinners. In fact, Jesus was called the friend of sinners. And yet being the friend of sinners and being around sinners, he never, ever compromised. Now, it's interesting He did have the label. There were some who called him a glutton and a wine-bibber. But notice, I want you to note this, it wasn't the sinners who were calling him that. They knew what he was like. They saw that, that he lived among them, you know, in an uncompromising way. He wasn't, you know, partying and getting wasted and that type of thing with them. They knew how he was among them, that he was uncompromising. But you know who called him a glutton and a wine bibber? It was the religious crowd. But get this, it was the religious crowd, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those religious leaders who never, ever saw him in that type of setting because they never would go in and around. They isolated themselves from the unbelievers and the sinners because they thought that they were going to be infected by them. And so they never saw Jesus in that type of setting. It was always from a distance. And Jesus said to those religious leaders one time, he said, guys, here's what you need to understand. I'm a doctor. And as a doctor, I'm going where the sick people are. I'm going where those who need a physician. So Paul says, don't cut yourself off from unbelievers because we're here to reach them and we're here to win them. But then he says this in verse 11. But now I have written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. In other words, anyone professing to be a Christian who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, don't even eat with such a person. And Paul is talking here in the present tense about all of these sins and it carries the idea of these are people that are practicing these sins, living in an habitual type of way in these situations. And he says, don't even keep company with them. Literally, don't mix together with them. It means don't associate with them intimately. The present tense of keeping company points to a regular type 
of association. The idea is where, you know, you're just still buddies. You're just still hanging out. You're just pretending like they're really not doing the things that they're doing. They're really not wrapped up in the kind of lifestyle that they're, they're doing. And Paul says, hey, with anybody who's a named brother, don't do that. Now, that doesn't mean, and hear me on this, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't occasionally maybe meet them at Starbucks just to see how they're doing just to look for that opportunity where maybe they, you know, might say, um, you know, man, I'm just, really, I'm just really sick of this. Because here's what we need to understand. When somebody is living in a habitual type of, of sin, one of the things that the, the devil loves to do, this is part of his tactic, is he heaps condemnation on them. And he wants them to think that the the Lord is just done with them, that he's abandoned them, especially if the church has done that. And nothing could be further from the truth. Condemnation is always from the enemy. It's always his way of pushing us away from the Lord. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit is always that of God's spirit and God's heart seeking to make us sick in our sin that he might pull us toward himself. So we, we need to look for those opportunities where we can get together with that person and, and have them say, you know, I'm just sick of this. But then they might say, but I just feel like I've gone too far. And then that, that's where you can say that's not true. Because the Bible says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guy, brother, sister, listen. If, if you're ready to turn, come back, Jesus is ready to accept you. So wonderful. And I want you to note that Paul expands on this idea beyond sexual sin. He says anyone who is sexually immoral, but then he adds this, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, that's somebody who's abusive, or a drunkard, somebody who's abusing alcohol or drugs, or an extortioner, somebody who's taking advantage of others. Paul says, listen, that person needs to be confronted. And if they are unwilling to repent, they need to be cast out in hopes that they would come to their senses. And then he gives us this final thought in verses 12 and 13. He says, for what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are on the inside? But those who are on the outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person, the brother, the sister, living in habitual sin, who's just flaunting it and acting like it's okay. You put that person away. Paul concluded that he and the Corinthians had no right to judge those who are outside the church. He says, because here's the deal. Jesus is going to judge them. We don't know their heart. We don't know their life. We don't know what they're going through. We don't know their story. Don't judge them. Jesus said, all judgment has been entrusted to me. And if you're watching this right now and you're not a Christian, listen, if you die... Not being a Christian, you're going to stand before Jesus one day. And he's going to judge you. And the biggest thing that he's going to judge you with is this. I died on the cross for you. I paid the price for your sin so that you could be free. What did you do with that information? 
And you see, you can't be neutral when it comes to Jesus. You can't be like, well, yeah, I kind of like Jesus, but I really don't, you know, I really don't want to live for God. No, Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. You can't be neutral. You can't have a foot in the world and a, and a foot in the Lord. It doesn't work that way. So Jesus is, he's going to judge you. I don't need to judge you. But in the meantime, I will tell you what the Bible says. I'll tell you about Jesus. I'll be honest with you and tell you what the Bible says is sinful and what isn't sinful, but I'm not going to judge you. But then Paul asks this question, do you not judge those who are on the inside? And that's a rhetorical question. And the answer is yes, we are called to judge those on the inside. Those who are involved in unrepentant, blatant sin, we have to judge them. We can't just overlook them. And you know what's interesting to me is oftentimes in the church we do the opposite. We judge the unbeliever, those heathen dogs, And we have this tendency to be loving and gracious and tolerant toward the believer who's living in habitual sin. Paul says the opposite should really be true. And I think that's one of the reasons why the church, or excuse me, the world can have a tendency to look upon the church in such a hypocritical type of way. They see us. Just making excuses for people who profess to be Christians who aren't living the way that they should. So let me wrap this up. So we need to lovingly discipline those who are in the church and patiently love those who are outside the church. And when we're loving those who are inside the church by having to discipline them, the goal is always for their restoration. It's always that they would come to their senses and come to Jesus. We don't judge unbelievers. We're seeking to win them because we know that one day Jesus will judge them if they don't get their hearts right with him. And so our hearts need to be that we're walking and realizing that Jesus, our Passover lamb, has set us free. So let's walk in the freedom. Let's walk in the liberty that we have in Christ by walking in holiness and that holiness in our lives would be something that that isn't a downer and a drudgery, but it's our delight because we know happy are the people whose God is the Lord. And we need to see unbelievers looking at us and going, man, there's something going on in him. There's something going on in her that I'm missing and I want And may that be true in your life. May that be true in our church. In Jesus' name, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you, God, for this passage. And we thank you, Lord, so much for for your heart. Your heart that does seek to love us enough to discipline us. And Lord, I pray for anybody right now who is listening to this and they know that they've been living in that habitual sin. And maybe there's no one else that knows about it, but they they know that you know about it. God, I pray right now that they would come to their senses, that that you would open their eyes to see the toll, the negative toll that that sin is having upon their relationship with you. 
that it's having upon them physically and emotionally and spiritually. And God, I pray tonight that they would turn in their hearts to you. Lord, I pray for anybody who is in that place and they're wanting to turn, but right now the enemy is just condemning them and seeking to push them away from you. God, I pray right now in this moment that they would realize that that's not your voice, but your voice is lovingly seeking to pull them in if they're ready to turn from that sin and turn to you, that you are going to receive them and throw your arms around them in the same way that the father of the prodigal son did when he came back. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, for just your amazing, incredible grace. And Lord, help us, help us, Lord, to walk uprightly in you and have that testimony to the outside world that we would truly be salt and light in their lives, drawing them to our loving Savior. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.